You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. When Christians are asked the question, who is your God? We answer that question, our God is the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, one being in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in glory, equal in power, equal in deity, equal in majesty, equal in holiness. And they exist together forever, uncreated, in relationship of perfect love. This doctrine of God is mysterious, isn't it? It's very difficult for us to think about how something can be one thing and three things at the same time. And we struggle with that to some degree, and we'll talk about that struggle a little bit more in a few minutes. But it's mysterious. That doesn't mean it's nonsensical. It doesn't mean we can't say truthful things about who God is as He's revealed Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mystery doesn't mean everything is hidden, because God has indeed revealed Himself through the Scriptures. But the mystery... remains profound. And it complicates things somewhat, doesn't it? Makes it a little bit harder for us to talk about who our God, and it makes our doctrine of God, our teaching about who God is, somewhat controversial in some circles. There are a variety of claims The most common one is probably, hey Christians, haven't you read your own Bible? The word Trinity isn't there. And you may be flipping to your concordance now to make sure I'm right about that, but it's not. Others would say, you know, in the early church, the first couple centuries, everything was going along really well, and then Greek philosophy worked its way into the church, and they were reading more Plato than they were Paul, and they kind of drew on some of those ideas and imported them falsely onto the revelation of God in Jesus and wound up with the Trinity. People say that sort of thing. It's not true, but it's the sort of thing we hear. And so we have to ask questions, right? If, if, if these are the objections, if these are the concerns, and we've sort of staked everything on God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship Jesus as God. We worship the Holy Spirit together with the Father and the Son. We've staked our worship on the fact that God is a trinity. And so we've got to deal with some of the objections, and we've got to ask ourselves the question, is this biblical? Is this a fair way, even if the word Trinity isn't in the New Testament or the Old Testament, is it a fair and useful word? And is it a a helpful idea or concept? Is it a helpful way to describe what we find in the Bible? Is the Trinity biblical? 
When we come to the Scriptures, and there are many texts we could go to today, we're working in the Gospel of John. We find that the doctrine, the teaching of the Trinity, one God, three persons, is indeed deeply biblical. It is a faithful way to give an account of the evidence we find in Scripture about the nature and character and qualities and being and personhood of God. It's so biblical, if we don't have it, nothing would actually make sense. Even more importantly, we find that the doctrine of Trinity is not only in the Scriptures, if not in the technical term, in concept, we find that the doctrine is in the Scriptures. It's not only that. We also find even more importantly that the mystery of the Trinity amplifies the beauty of love. The mystery of the Trinity makes love comprehensible. When we go around and say, hey, I love you to a spouse or a child, We only are able to talk like that because we live in a world made by the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity amplifies the beauty of love. So let's talk about that. John chapter 1 begins with familiar language, doesn't it? In the beginning... And so we know that John wants us thinking about who God is and what He's up to, except he sort of changes the script on us a little bit, doesn't he? We expect Genesis 1, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. But he doesn't give us that. He quotes those first three words, and he kind of inserts some new language in the place where God belongs. Now, Let that weigh in for just a second. If you're going to take the word God out of a sentence and put something else in there, you don't do that lightly, do you? If you're going to take the the Bible, right? if you're a devout first century Jewish person, and you're going to take the Old Testament, if you're going to take the Torah, if you're going to take the books of Moses, and you're going to take the first verse, and you're going to take the word God out of it, and put another word in its place, something's going on there, isn't it? You don't do that lightly. You don't do that without reflection. You don't do that unless the Spirit of God is making something known to you. And so what does he say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so immediately, we are faced with this claim, aren't we? About the nature of God. And it's a striking claim because we typically don't talk this way, do we? Like, if I were to walk up to you and introduce myself, if you're worshiping with us for the first time, and I would say, hi, I'm Pastor Matt, and I'm with Pastor Matt, you would probably go to another church right that moment, wouldn't you? You would just turn around and you would be gone. I don't know what this guy's doing. I don't know what this church is about, but I'm uncomfortable around this person. I'm leaving. (laughs) 
And yet John says something very similar about Jesus, the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, which one is it, John? And John says, yes, both. And we've got to stop and say, what, what's he getting at here? What's he after? What's he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us something about the nature of God because he's taking the sentence about God. He's taking the word God out and putting the word word in. And then he goes and tells us something about the word, the way the word relates to God. Not only that the word is with God, but the word is also God. So how do we flesh that out? Here's what I propose. John is trying to find language under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, looking for language to describe a reality that he experienced when he met Jesus. When the disciples met Jesus, they found that Jesus and God, the God of the Old Testament, the Creator God, shared something unique. Jesus has some, a different kind of relationship with their God. There is a unity between the two of them that no one else they've ever met shares. John is trying to tell us the Word was God. Jesus, the Word made flesh. The Word incarnate. The Word who has taken on a human body. This is like we showed up and we looked at Jesus and we saw our God. We saw our God. There is a unity there. There's something about the being of God, the essence of God, and the being of this man Jesus, the essence of Jesus, and they are one and the same. They are unified uniquely. But that's not all, is it? They have unity, but they also they're they're distinct. <laughs> Jesus, after all, addresses God as the Father. He describes himself as the Son of the Father. And John is taking these ideas. The Word was God. The Word was with God. And he's trying to tell us that Jesus and God share essential unity, but they are also distinct. Now, if I again came up and said, Hi, I'm Matt, and I'm with Matt, that would be crazy talk. Because what's true of Jesus isn't true of me in that way. Like, unity and distinction with God is not the same here. But for Jesus, the Word made flesh, you have both unity and distinction. He's one with God, but as a person, the Son, He relates to another person, the Father. Unity and distinction. Now, we read a little bit of John chapter 14. Because you may already be thinking, hey, we're, okay, I hear this, Jesus and the Father, one and distinct, unity and distinction, but this is a doctrine of the Trinity, what about the Holy Spirit? And that's where Jesus comes along, and as He's revealing God in His body, as He's revealing the essence of God in His body, if, as, he's, as He's making known that God is one being in multiple persons, we get to the point where He wants them to realize it's not just two persons, it's three. And so he tells them in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
I will ask the Father and He will give you another Advocate who will be with you forever. And this is where we begin to see that that the divine life is not limited to Father and Son. There's another who shares forever. You hear that language. Jesus is attributing eternity to the Spirit. Eternity is something that is attributed to the Father, to God. Jesus, who's with the Father in the beginning, shares that eternity. And the Spirit also, who's with them forever, participates in those aspects of God's life. Eternity. Foreverness. Now, is there anybody who has foreverness in the room? Anybody? Nobody's raising their hand? Good. I was afraid somebody would. I just... Creatures don't have foreverness, do they? Creatures don't have eternity. Words like forever only get given to gods. And so Jesus is, is helping the disciples. There's another one. He's like me. The Father sent me. And I'm going to go back to the Father and I'm going to ask Him. And he's going to send you another one like me who's distinct, but we are working together. We share one mind He's going to enable you to love one another. He's going to teach you. There are all kinds of things we don't have time to get in today about the work of the Spirit. He will be your advocate. He will be your uh, instructor. All of these things. So again, what we find in the Scriptures, and if we had time to just sort of read the Gospel of John together, you would see how this language just shows up again and again and again. Jesus talks about the way He relates to the Father and the Son. So when Jesus shows up, we learn something about God we didn't know before. We learn that God is marked by two two things. Unity and what? Distinction. Unity and diversity, if you want to use it that way. The church, over the next couple of hundred years, said we need a good way to to pack that up and carry it around, and then when we get places, we can unpack it and help people understand it. One theologian that I read a fair bit of says doctrines are like suitcases. You kind of take all this information like John 1 and John 14, you pack it up in the suitcase, you zip it closed, you go wherever you're going. When you get there, what's the first thing you do? You unpack your suitcase, right? So you get there, you pull out that little thing in the hotel that's in the closet for your suitcase to sit on. You put it there, you unzip it, and you start unpacking, and you put your clothes in various places and all those kinds of things. The early church said, we've got all this information in the New Testament, and we're only scratching the surface today. I mean, we could go to the letters of Paul, and we could go to Revelation, and we could go to other places in the New Testament that are just full of evidence and data about the unity and diversity distinction that that is within our God. We don't have time for all that. We're doing one thing today. So they looked at all that and they said, we need a word. We need a word that will function like a suitcase. And we can take all this information and we can drop it on that one word. And then you can take it over there and you can take it over there. And when you get there, you're going to have to unpack it. You can't just leave it. You've got to unpack it. What's the word? What's the word? And... At some point, a theologian said, hey, what about the word Trinity? His name was Tertullian. 
And there were people going around saying things that didn't fit in the suitcase. And he was trying to help out with that. So he said, why don't we use this word trinity? In Latin, trinitas. And that word will be the word that we use to describe the unity that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share and the diversity that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the way they relate to each other. Now, it's weird, it's kind of strange, it's kind of mysterious to talk about something being one thing and three things all at the same time. So let's have one word to talk about their unity and another word to talk about their distinction. And the word they settled on, the language they settled on for the unity of God was the word being. I know that sounds a little abstract, kind of philosophical, but... I find comfort in the fact that John, when he wants to talk about the unity of God, uses a being verb, right? The word was God. This is about their essence. This is, about, this is a claim about God's being. Grammatically or theologically, either way. We want to talk about the unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, participating together in the same glory, the same power, the same love, the same holiness, the same majesty, the same eternity. We use the word... I just said it, you know, being. Sometimes essence, but, but that's the kind of language. We want to talk about their distinction. The early church said, let's use a different word, because if you're one and you're three, you're not one and three in the same way. You're one and three in different ways. And so we'll talk about unity, oneness with one word, and diversity, distinction, threeness with another word. Oneness, we're going to talk about being. Threeness, we'll talk about, we'll talk about the Trinitarian persons. Right? Because being a person is really about being in a relationship with who? Other people. Other persons, right? Like, if I were the only person, I might not think of myself as a person. I'd just be a... I don't know what I would think of myself as. I'd be the only one, right? But when we talk about persons, we're talking about persons in relationship. So the early church said, here's what we'll do. We'll take this word, Trinity... We'll take all the evidence in the Bible, like John chapter 1 and John 14 and the stuff in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and all the other places, right? And we're going to just load that up in the word Trinity. One being, three persons. That's manageable, isn't it? I mean, I can say that. It's only like seven or eight words. Trinity, one being, three, five words. And then when we get where we're going, we'll open up our Bibles and unpack it, like we're doing right now. And so when we say, is the word Trinity biblical? That doesn't mean, is it in the Bible? It means, is there data in the Bible that is faithfully communicated and transmitted with the word Trinity? And we are finding right now that the answer is what? Yes. The answer is absolutely yes. Now, when we run into difficult concepts, we sometimes use illustrations or analogies to talk about them, don't we? And there are all kinds of illustrations for the Trinity, and some of them are really bad, and you want to stay away from those. So if we're going to sort of evaluate our illustrations, then we need analogies or illustrations. And remember, analogies are like the thing they illustrate in some ways, but not every way. So if we want to come up with an analogy for the Trinity, 
or making a single claim, but not every claim. So there's a lot of analogies for the Trinity out there. If we want to pick the good ones and the bad ones, we want to, we want to use this language of unity and distinction. If an analogy for the Trinity gets both unity and distinction at the same time, then it's probably helpful. And if it only does unity or it only does distinction, well, that may not be the most helpful analogy in the world. So what are some of the bad analogies? If you've used these with your kids, I apologize, but better now, better, better now than never, right? So when I was a kid, we had this book, and it tried to explain the Trinity with an apple. Maybe you have this book. I don't know if it's probably not still in print. But. So the idea was, you know, you've got the apple, and the apple has three parts. It's got the peel. Maybe you peel that off if you don't want to eat it. And under the peel is the fruit that you actually eat. And inside, you've got the core with the seeds in it. So that... That's three things, peel, fruit, seeds. But how many apples do we have? One apple. The trouble with this, and I get get what it's after, is the distinction is clearly there. But the reality is the peel doesn't really reflect the fruit, and the seeds are quite different, and it's kind of difficult for me to see how that holds unity together. Kind of difficult for me to see how that holds unity together. I get where it's going, but I don't think it's all that... I don't think it's most helpful. Uh, another common one is uh, the analogy of the clover. This one goes way back to the 5th century when St. Patrick went to Ireland after he'd been kidnapped by the Irish. Rough folks, the Irish. He'd been kidnapped by the Irish, taken in as a prisoner. He managed to escape, and God said, hey, guess what I want you to do, Patrick? Get back over to Ireland and evangelize those guys who treated you so badly. You know, if you're my disciple, you'll love one another, so let's see it. So Patrick goes back, and he is reputed to have tried to explain the Trinity, whether or not he actually did this, I don't know, maybe he did, with a three-leaf clover, right? So maybe you go out in the yard, and you find a clover, it's got three little leaves, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's what it looks like. But again, they're not interconnected. They're not woven together. You just got these three, like there's lots of plants out there with three leaves, right? Not sure it's the most helpful analogy. One other we'll, we'll do that comes up from time to time, and that's the analogy of H2O. Uh, H2O, water, right? If it's at room temperature is what? It's a liquid. You go put it in the freezer, what happens to it? It turns into a solid. If you put it in a pot and put it on the stove and crank up the heat, what does it do? It turns into a gas, a vapor. Here we have one H2O molecule that can exist in three states. The trouble is it doesn't typically exist in those three states all at the same time. I said this one time and a guy said, actually, if you study thermodynamics, which I've not... <laughs> Uh, there is a point and a pressure. If, the, if you get just the right temperature, just the right pressure, you get all three at once. And that boggled my mind because I don't really, I don't understand that, but just go with it, right? Most of us don't think about the triple point of thermodynamics. If you know about that, catch me later. I'd love to hear all about it. But typically, it's got to stop being vapor to become liquid and stop being liquid to become what? A solid. Well, there are some ancient heresies that said, well, the Father showed up, and He stopped being the Father and became the Son, and then He stopped being the Son and became the Spirit. And that's kind of how the Bible progresses. But again, we lose 
what the Bible really says about God, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are communing together. So we want to kind of dispatch with the bad analogies. There's one that I like a great deal, that when I came across this a few years ago, uh, I just almost fell off my chair because I thought it was so helpful. We talk about it in confirmation class, so those of you who've been through Absolute Basics of the Christian Faith, you may remember this. Um, Just a little while ago, we sang some songs, didn't we? Josh played some chords on his guitar. And a chord... Uh, There are different kinds of chords, but a major chord involves how many notes? Who knows? Three, right? And if you're going to play a major chord, you've got to get those three notes, and you play them at the same time, and there's still three individual notes, right? But simultaneously, they form one single chord when they harmonize. Now, the analogy breaks down at some other places, but what it helpfully does is it helps us see how something can be one thing and three things at the same time. And it really is one thing and three things at the same time. I mean, if you pull out a piano and you hit those three notes, you're you're pushing three keys and you hear one sound. Now, someone with a really good ear, like Myra, will be able to pick out all the different sounds underneath it, but not all of us are blessed in that way. One and three simultaneously. Now you may be saying, preacher, this is maybe interesting. Why does it matter? Sounds like a bunch of fancy highfalutin ivory tower seminary theology. What's the point? I thought you were going to talk about love because that's what was in the bottom line, but so far we were just talking about analogies and church history and all of this stuff. What do we do with this? How do we, like, what does it matter? And here's the thing that I want you to see. No, no, let me put that differently. Here's the thing I want you to experience. When Jesus starts talking about the way He relates to the Father and the Spirit, there's one word that shows up again and again and again and again. You know what it is? Say it if you do. Love. Jesus loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Spirit honors the Father and the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. There is this relationship of committed, triune love. We read John's Gospel. We get down uh, towards the end of the prologue and we hear the Word became flesh, verse 14, and lived among us and we've seen His glory. The glory is of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. And that, that only Son language, if we're John wants us to be thinking about our Old Testament. If we're thinking about our Old Testament, we think about another guy who had one son, his only son, his beloved son in the Old Testament. We think about Abraham, don't we? And Isaac. And we think about how much Abraham loved Isaac. And how deeply he loved Isaac. And we are invited to think that here's this this only son of the Father. How much more does the eternal God love His only Son, than any of us could even begin to imagine in our human experience. The Word became flesh and lived, dwelled among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from His fullness we've all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here's the verse I just want to settle in with you. I want us to settle in on it for a moment. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. 
He hasn't visibly manifested His presence to us, has He? No one has ever seen God. He's invisible. However, God, the only, unique, singular, one Son. And then we get this phrase, who is close to the Father's heart. Several years ago, I was reading through this in uh, the Greek New Testament. I was kind of working on my grammar and syntax a little bit. And I was struck by the phrasing. Because the, the normal word for heart isn't actually in the Greek text here. It's the word for chest. And the language, the preposition, literally says the only Son of God who is into the Father's chest. And we don't have, like nobody says, into your chest in English. right? It's kind of, may strike us a little bit peculiar. But the image in the Greek New Testament is of the first time a mother takes her baby into her arms. What does she do? She draws that child as close to her chest as she possibly can. John picks this image of just deep intimacy of a parent and a child. He says that's what the relationship between the Creator and the Word made flesh is like. Nobody has ever been as close to the Father as Jesus. They are one. And yet they are distinct. And that means that Jesus, who is close to the Father's heart, who is into the Father's chest, who is held and embraced as close, as like closer than you can even begin to imagine in His distinction, has come to dwell among us and to make the Father known. Because He and the Father abound with the Spirit in perfect, eternal, unimaginable love. The love, take for a moment, just take for a moment and think about, don't, you can't think about it, you're going to have to try to imagine it, okay? The Trinity, before anything is made, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has not yet said, let there be light. Only God. Nothing created. Only the uncreated God. Father, Son, and Spirit are communing. And what's the one word that describes that communion? When we talk about God being a creator, we're talking about God in relation to us, aren't we? He's my creator. When we talk about God being sovereign, we talk about Him being His existence in relation to who? To us. He's sovereign over us. We talk about Him as Savior. We're talking about Him in relation to us, aren't we? Like most of the words we use to talk about God are very focused on us, aren't they? They're good words, they're appropriate words, but most of them are with, they define God with reference to the world He's made. What's the one word? What is the word that describes God most perfectly as He is unto Himself? Love. Before anything was made, before God was Creator, the Father loved the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father and the Son, and the Son loved the Father and the Spirit. 
Before God was ever a judge of any sinner, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existed eternally in perfect love. It's at the heart. This is who God is. Not three gods, not one person, one God in three persons unified forever in perfect, other-oriented love. And so Jesus says to His disciples, I come to give you a new commandment. John 13, verse 34. I give you a new commandment that you what? Love one another. And then he tells the disciples in chapter 14, we read together a few minutes ago, if you love me, you will obey me. The word that defines discipleship is what? Love. And this is where we begin to see God's purpose. If the eternal Trinity exists forever in perfect love, then Jesus says the way the world will know that you belong to me is what? Perfect love. Like love. You have to love each other. When it's messy, when you're angry, when somebody like treats you wrong or talks bad about you, or whatever it is, love them. Because that's the thing that defines the Trinity with relation to the Trinity. It's also the thing that defines the people who belong to the Trinity. And this is where we begin to see that God's purposes for us are not simply the forgiveness of our sins, but the transformation of our character so that we can come to embody His character. And what's the word for His character? Love. Perfect, holy, eternal love. God is love. God reveals Himself in Jesus. Why? Because He loves us. To make us children of God. He says, this is what, these are my purposes for you. I want you to love each other. Now this is a word. This is crucial, friends. The word love in some places has been co-opted and redefined to mean if you love me, then you're going to stay out of my business and just accept me with nothing whatsoever. Like, don't criticize me. Don't correct me. Don't get, like, just affirm me. That's what love means, right? Not here. Jesus loves us. And because He loves us, He resolved Himself to deal with our sin and our rebellion and our junk and our brokenness. Love is not kind of like, hey, yeah, you know, you're fine. Thanks be to God Jesus didn't go, hey, O'Reilly, you know, you're fine on your own. I love you. Do what you want to do, bud. 
Thanks be to God he doesn't take that posture to us. Thanks be to God he says, I love you, and that means I'm going to come down in that grime in which you live, and I'm going to immerse myself in the dirt and the dust of Jerusalem and Galilee, and I'm going to get all of this humanity on myself, and I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to instruct you, and before it's all over, I'm going to love you to the uttermost, we are told. And what is the uttermost? It looks like a cross. You want to know what Trinitarian love looks like? You look at Jesus with his arms stretched wide on that Roman cross. You don't know why the Trinity matters. You, don't, you want to know why it's a hill that we will die on? You look at the cross. We only know what love is because He first loved us. You don't have to be a Christian to love someone, but you can only love someone because you live in a world where Christianity is true. The unbeliever only loves people because Jesus loves them. Remember, He's the light that enlightens everyone. He's the light who comes into the world, whose grace touches and draws, doesn't mean people don't resist and say, nope, don't want any part of that. But He comes and He offers His light and He extends it. And he calls and He invites and He woos and He commands because He loves us. So the Trinity is a doctrine, but it's not some sort of ethereal ivory tower, pie in the sky. Oh, this is just what theologians do when they don't have anything better to do. It drives us. We are on mission because we are Trinitarian. We do discipleship because we are Trinitarian. We want strong homes and strong families and strong churches and strong Sunday schools. And we band together in band meetings to carry one another in love because we are Trinitarian. Is the Trinity in the Bible? Yes. And more importantly, more importantly, the Trinity in the Bible amplifies to every aspect of our life the beauty of God's perfect love. The question for us is whether we look at that love and say, hmm, not today. There were people in the Gospels who did that, weren't there? It's not where we want to be. Maybe you're hearing the Word and something stirring. You're in the room. You're in your living room. But something is stirring and you're realizing that this kind of love, this Trinitarian love, this perfect love, you haven't experienced that.
the Lord Jesus Christ wants to shower you, to lavish you. Remember that word? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace through Jesus. He wants to give that to you now. Surrender to Him. There are others, this is probably most of us, we've experienced that perfect love before. We're here because we've experienced His perfect love. And we've experienced His, the way that it changes us, and we've experienced the way that it transforms us, but we know that that journey never ends. And today, we need Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to bring us more deeply in, further in, to their eternal, perfect love. The exhortation is the same. Surrender. Allow Him to wash over you. You have heard the good things that He has done. And you have heard the good things that he wants to do. His love is perfect in every way. Thanks be to God, his desire is to invite us to participate in that perfection of his love. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.